0: This forum address, entitled, Exploring Nature's Curiosity Cabinet, was given on October 25th of 2022 by Paul Allen Cox, an American ethnobotanist.
1: When I was a professor and dean at BYU, I received in my office in, my, in the Maser Building a small red envelope. The return address had marked on it, the Royal Palace, Stockholm. Wow. Inside was a note signed by King Carl 16 Gustav, announcing that for his 50th birthday party, 50th birthday, the Royal Academy of Sciences in Stockholm had given him the right to appoint a professor to a chair named in his honor. I was stunned to open this and read that I was his choice. I didn't even know I was under consideration for anything. I showed it to President Merrill Bateman. He said, well, you'd better go. Maybe want to get rid of me for other reasons, but. <laughs> My family and I packed our suitcases and moved to Uppsala, Sweden. After we arrived, a palace official told me that I should prepare a special inaugural lecture for King Carl XVI, Gustav, and Queen Sylvia in a lecture hall in Uppsala. He opined that I probably didn't know many people in Sweden. Was there anyone special that, he'd like, that I'd like to invite? I told him, in addition to my colleagues at the Swedish Center for Biological Diversity, I had approximately 70 friends in Uppsala. My inaugural lecture, many members of our Uppsala branch of the church met for the first time their royal monarchs. In addition to the royal palace in Stockholm, I was able to visit other historic castles and gardens throughout Sweden. The Skokloster's castle on a beautiful lake south of Uppsala which we visited with my former BYU postdoc, Dr. Thomas Elmquist, and his wife, orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Eva Pontaine, I asked permission to look up in the castle's attic. There I spied a large but dusty ornate wardrobe. It was a curiosity cabinet housing special collections of natural history. Assembling such curiosity cabinets was the rage among 17th century monarchs and aristocrats. Curiosity cabinets emerged as compact versions of small rooms containing natural history specimens, books, paintings, and other curious things. One of the earliest illustrations of such a room is found in Ferranti Imperato's 1599 book, Della Historia Naturale, shows drawings containing pressed flowers, seashells, and of all things, a stuffed crocodile affixed to the ceiling. In 1655, the front piece to the Danish book, Ole Verm's Cabinet of Wonder, Natural Specimens and Wondrous Monsters, and we wonder where J.K. Rowling got her ideas from. It depicts minerals, plants, animal specimens, complete with what may be the first illustration of a robot, a machine this dressed like a man. They had a wheel, they could turn this thing would wander around the room. And it appears to me that he's dressed in Sami costume from Lapland. In England, a curiosity cabinet purchased in 1702 from William and by the popularizer of milk chocolate, Sir Hans Sloan provided the genesis of the collections currently housed at the Natural History Museum in London. Well, the top of this dusty wardrobe in School Coaster's castle. And much to the curator's amazement, I opened the swinging doors and opened the drawers in the side and bottom. And in them, I found dried plants, seashells, and a multitude of other natural curiosities. But there was also a double coconut, the seed of a palm species, Loduishi maldivica, which grows only in the Seychelles Islands in the Indian Ocean. Anciently, double coconuts, which are the largest seeds in the world, would wash up on beaches. Their origin was shrouded in mystery. Some said that these double coconuts must be relics from the Garden of Eden. Since God had pronounced the garden good, they believed that no beverage or food served from double coconut shells could possibly poison the recipient. Hence, double coconuts were highly sought by European monarchs. Our planet resembles today, to my mind, a giant curiosity cabinet with wonders to be found in every nook and cranny. Today, I'd like to explore with you a few items from nature's curiosity cabinet. Some of these may also provide solutions to our modern problems. In the San Rafael Swell Desert in Utah, is found a remarkable plant, Pediocactus dispanii. This small cactus spends its entire life, almost, hidden underground. In what poet E. Cummings termed just spring, Pediocactus pushes itself up above the soil surface, producing exquisite cantaloupe-colored petals. After pollination and seed production, the cactus then retreats again underground, where it spends the remainder of the year hidden beneath the soil. Over centuries, these cacti have continued their annual excursion up to the surface and then back down again. I don't know if they were ever observed by the Native Americans or early pioneers, but my hat's off to the US Bureau of Land Management, which is trying to protect this highly endangered species by restricting off-road vehicles at the time they're flowering in the spring. The New York Times published my photo of Pediocactus the Spanii for an article on the importance of saving endangered spe- plant species. In another drawer of nature's curiosity cabinet, we find fossils of stromatolites. Stromatolites are concentric accretions made over thousands of years by cyanobacteria. They occur, occur in the fossil record as early as 3 billion years ago. Through the miracle of photosynthesis, these microscopic organisms captured electrons from seawater in the process releasing molecular oxygen. For billions of years, day after day, cyanobacteria bubbled up oxygen every time the sun shone. 600 million years ago, this iterative process yielded oxygen concentrations equivalent to 1% of our current atmospheric levels. This was sufficient enough to screen out enough DNA-scrambling uh, ultraviolet radiation that life for the first time could survive at the surface of the ocean. The resultant explosion of plant life in the oceans over the next 200 million years increased oxygen to 10% of current levels. And at that point, life could survive on the surface of the land. As the moderator of the Earth's atmosphere in the current largest carbon sink in the world, cyanobacteria seldom receive any thanks for the service. Yet their production of oxygen gas on this planet has been crucial. As Nephi tells us, and thus by small means, we see that the Lord can bring about great things. When I was a University of Melbourne research fellow, Barb and I traveled out with our small children to remote Shark Bay in Western Australia, to see living stromatolites. These are relics of the divine machinery that produced our oxygen-rich atmosphere. At that time, the only other known site for marine stromatolites was near Exuma Key in the Bahamas. On our arrival at Shark Bay, after a very long and dusty 12-hour drive from Perth, I saw only large rounded rocks, and I was suddenly embarrassed to realize that in my haste to make the trip, I neglected to find out what stromatolites actually look like. Fortunately, our young children, including Hillary, who's here today, forgave this lapse, particularly when they swam with the wild dolphins off the wilderness beach at nearby Monkey Mia. The children were concerned when suddenly the dolphins left, but then they returned with a small baby dolphin. It was as if the adult dolphin said, quick, find Junior, there are baby humans up on the beach. Returning to Melbourne, to my embarrassment, I found out <clears throat> that the large rounded rocks I stood on in the Shark Bay were actually the stromatolites I sought. No, those are not the droids I sought. Those were the stromatolites. Stromatolites are formed over vast amounts of time, layer upon layer of microscopic cyanobacteria interacting with minerals and other species of bacteria. I quickly arranged another trip to go back to Shark Bay. And those stromatolites I studied are now part of a World Heritage Site established by the United Nations and the Australian government. Here in North America, there's great concern about the impact of a historically long, long drought the result lowering of Lake Mead in Nevada has revealed sunken boats, cars and unfortunately, even a few dead bodies. In 1984, the water of the Great Salt Lake occupied 3,300 square miles. Today, 40 years later, the waters occupy 950 square miles, a reduction in area of 71 percent. As the surface of the Great Salt Lake has receded it's revealed its own stunning secret, but this is far more beautiful than the Lake Mead. It turns out that the turbid waters of the Great Saw Lake have long concealed living stromatolites. Photographing them by helicopter with my colleague from the grain chemistry labs, Dr. James Metcalf, I was stunned to find that these modern representatives of Earth's most ancient life forms are there thriving. Now, to be clear, this is not an original discovery. We thought it was, but afterwards, searching the literature, I saw that other scholars had observed previously cyanobacterial forms in the lake. But they're so extraordinary, these tramadolites. And the Great Salt Lake is so important to this ecosystem along the Wasatch Front, that I believe the entire area should be protected. Another drawer in nature's curiosity cabinet reveals seeds of the cycad tree from the island of Guam in the Pacific. This provides another fascinating link to cyanobacteria, searching for the cause of a puzzling paralytic disease that killed many of the residents of two villages. We discovered that cyanobacteria harbored in specialized roots of the cycad tree produce a chronic neurotoxin called BMAA, beta-methylamino L-alanine. These unusual aerial roots grow upwards through the soil surface and look like little lumps of coal of coral. There, the cyanobacteria photosynthesize and produce this rich, nitrogen rich toxin. Traditional food items made from cycad seed flour, such as tortillas and dumplings, are contaminated with this neurotoxin. Together with Dr. Sandra Bannix, Susan Merch, and Patricia Stewart, <clears throat> we discovered that villagers feasting on flying foxes, which forage on cycad seeds, receive a particularly high dose of BMAA. And when consumed at village feasts, the cooked flesh of flying foxes dramatically increases the BMA dose uh, received by villagers. Professor Clark Monson, who gave the opening prayer, wrote part of his doctoral dissertation and published an outstanding paper on this issue. Villagers with this disease in Guam have symptoms of ALS, sometimes Parkinson's, sometimes Alzheimer's, some poor individuals have all three symptomologies and at its peak, over 25% of the adults in these two villages perished from the illness. Outside of Guam, we're not immune to BMA exposure. Agricultural runoffs and improperly treated sewage flowing into rivers, lakes, and estuaries trigger explosions in cyanobacterial populations, causing what we call cyanobacterial blooms. We found a clear link between a chronic exposure to BMAA and risk of neurodegenerative illness. In a research facility on the Caribbean islands of St. Kitts, we're able to replicate the neuropathology of Guam villagers in vervets that were fed each day for 140 days a piece of fruit with BMAA. Control animals did not have any neuropathology. Dartmouth neurologist, Dr. Elijah Stommel, found that individuals who live near lakes or reservoirs in New England with cyanobacterial blooms have a 25-fold increased risk of developing ALS, a terrible paralytic disease. Dredging Lakes has been proposed as a way to reduce nutrient loads, including here in Utah Lake, but there's concerns that this would only mobilize the nutrients causing even greater cyanobacterial blooms. At the Brain Chemistry Labs, we've been monitoring toxins in Lake Okeechobee in the cyanobacterial blooms in Florida. When water from Lake Okeechobee is released down the St. Lucie River to the east coast of Florida and the Caloosahatchee to the west, tens of thousands of Florida residents are exposed to BMA and other cyanobacterial toxins. Together with a team at Aware Scientific in Springville, Utah, the Brain Chemistry Labs is now designing a commercial immunoassay similar to a COVID-19 test so that lay people can simply and inexpensively test green discolored water near their boat docks and homes for BMA. With our colleagues, Dr. Rachel Dunlop and Ken Rogers in Sydney, Australia, we discovered that protein misfolding induced by BMA, and this is what kills motor neurons, can be blocked by the naturally occurring amino acid L-serine. This is abundant in soybeans, sweet potatoes, and many species of marine algae. With neuropathologist Dr. David Davis at the Miami Brain Endowment Bank, we found that L-serine blocks microglial activation, deposits of protein TDP-43, as well as other signs of early ALS in vervets that had chronic dietary exposure to BMAA. In Ogimi Village on the northern tip of Okinawa Island, Japan, we found that villagers' traditional diet of seaweed and tofu gives them four to five times the amount of L-serine that we receive daily in our American diet. is known throughout Japan as Longevity Village because of its high percentage of 90 and 100-year-old residents. The absence of Alzheimer's disease and ALS is striking. Aged Ogimi villagers move like ballerinas. I can't keep up with these 100-year-old women and have absolute recall back to their earliest childhood. It's like being in a time machine talking to these people. Based on our data, the FDA has rapidly approved four different human clinical trials of L-serine as a possible treatment for neurodegenerative illness, including ALS, and we've started now a clinical trial at Houston Methodist Hospital, started just in August, for mild cognitive impairment, which is seen as a precursor to Alzheimer's disease. This will allow us to determine if L-serine is neuroprotective in people same way it is in vervets and the way it appears to be in algami villagers. Another drawer in nature's curiosity cabinet yields a dried sample of violets. These small flowers may actually hold the key to treating glioblastoma, a lethal form of brain cancer. Together with Dr. Samantha Gerlich, we've been studying small circular peptides called cyclotides. They're, they're really cool. These really look like a warped frisbee, uh, we find that these cyclotides have extraordinary potency in vitro against human glioblastoma cells. During long days and nights in our Jacksonville laboratory, we've been able to extract only minuscule quantities of these cyclotides from violets. But now this summer, our research has been accelerated by chemical synthesis of these fascinating molecules. Searching nature's curiosity cabinet for new medicines, is far from an unusual endeavor. Over 60% of doctors' prescriptions written in the United States either contain or are modeled after a molecule found in biodiversity. And over half of those come from plants, many of them used for centuries by healers and shamans in indigenous societies. Opening another drawer in nature's curiosity cabinet, we find the bark of a small Samoan rainforest tree, homolanthus newtons. Which healers there use to treat hepatitis. Together with my colleagues, Drs. Gordon Cragg, Michael Boyd, John Cartalina II, John Butler, and other co- colleagues at the U.S. National Cancer Institute, and with the permission of village chiefs and the Prime Minister of Samoa, we analyzed the bark of homolanthus newtons, discovering prostratin, a promising drug candidate for the treatment of HIV/AIDS. My friend, Stanford chemistry professor, Paul Winder, has now synthesized even more active forms of the prostratin molecule. In a benefit-sharing agreement prior to the establishment of the International Convention on Biodiversity or the CBD, we reached an agreement to share any commercial proceeds of prostratin with the government of Samoa, the village, and the families of the healers. But subsequent to our discovery of prostratin at the National Cancer Institute, we faced a serious challenge. A logging company showed up and started clear cutting the rainforest where we had collected this small tree. I requested a meeting with the village chiefs to ask them why they allowed the loggers to cut the rainforest. The chiefs responded that the government required them to build an elementary school or they would pull all the teachers out of the village. They, the chiefs said we're poor people or just subsistence farmers and fishermen. The only way they had to get $85,000 was to accept that exact amount, which was offered by the logging company to completely clear cut their rainforest. So I asked the village, Could you save the rainforest if somehow we could raise the money to build the school? The village dispatched two chiefs' machetes to send the loggers and their bulldozers away. (laughs) I returned to Barbara with good news and bad news. Good news, we had an opportunity to save the largest lowland rainforest remaining in Samoa. Bad news, we'd have to sell our house and our car to do so. You can tell if your marriage is working at a moment like that. Barbara took my hand. She looked into my eyes. She said, Paul, how often in our lives will we have a chance to do something like this? Let's go for it. Soon our families, Soon our family, friends, and students, some here at BYU, heard that we were cashing out I think there was fear we were gonna sell a couple of our children. (laughs) They all started pitching in. Former Samoan missionaries, Ken Murdoch and Rex Mon made significant donations. Soon we assembled the necessary funds and didn't even have to lose our house. In Just a few weeks, I returned to Samoa with all the needed funds for the school in my backpack. Together with the villagers, we went to the logging company headquarters. And they told the loggers never to return. It was probably the second best day of my life. First was when I married Barbara in the Provo Temple. And of course, birth of our children, just forgive me. (laughs) What happened was Valle Village signed a covenant to protect the rainforest for 50 years. I saw Blake Crony and Steve Lennon at Skin, They offered $75,000 to build a walkway through the rainforest. This is my daughter, Jane. The village now earns more ecotourism revenues from that walkway than was ever offered them by the logging company. And they do so without destroying a single tree. You do not even, even have your dinner pulled up in this like, tree house. The only sort of serious film I'd ever seen was uh, Swiss Family Robinson and the lower rope and you can sleep up there, eat your dinner and then slap mosquitoes all night. Soon we started receiving requests from other villages that heard about the story. Villages who were being forced to choose between protecting the rainforest and building schools for their children. BYU alumnus Bill Murray joined with Barbara and me and Ken Murdoch to create a new not-for-profit organization, Seacology. The word comes from the interface of the forest and the ocean. Based on generous contributions from people throughout the world, Sikology builds schools, medical clinics, solar electrification schemes, and water supplies in small island villages in return for the villagers' covenant to protect the rainforest, coral reefs, and other precious resources. In 2019, Barb and I attended the dedication of the 350th project built by Sikology. An elementary school, water tanks, teacher housing, in remote Namuku village, NabuBu village, in Vanua Levu Island, in Fiji. In this effort, psychology partnered with BYU education professor, R. Wayne Shute. A little girl asked that we take her photograph with Barbara. We later found that this little girl was barefoot and that she walks eight kilometers every day to get to school. That's how precious to her and her family that education is. Seacology has now completed 386 different schools, electrification schemes, projects in 69 different countries, conserving 1.5 million acres of rainforest and coral reef. Another drawer in nature's treasure chest reveals a mangrove seed Mangroves are trees with stilt roots that grow in salt water along the coastlines of many islands. In a remarkable convergence with mammals. Mangroves give live birth. Their long seeds germinate right on the trees. The growing seedling then drops into the ocean to float to another site. Mangroves sequester more carbon per gram-dry weight than any other type of terrestrial vegetation. Conserving mangroves can therefore play an important role in reducing atmospheric carbon levels. In the nation of Tuvalu in the Pacific, psychology partnered with a local women's collective to plant mangroves. In Sri Lanka, we made an agreement with the president and parliament to protect all of Sri Lanka's mangroves in return for Psikology, sponsoring microloans and a short business training course for 12,000 impoverished coastal women. We found that villages that protect mangroves receive far less damage from tsunamis and hurricane-driven waves. In such cases, mangrove conservation can prove to be a matter of life and death for the villagers. In addition, mangroves serve as nurseries for fish and other marine organisms. As part of the Sri Lanka project, we built three large mangrove nurseries throughout the country, each growing half a million mangrove seeds. We also built a mangrove museum. It's really cool. It's a short drive from the capital city of Colombo and is like the top thing now for kids for their school trip. You see the museum, you get on a boat and go out through the mangroves. And now we're replicating that successful effort in Sri Lanka, in the Dominican Republic, in the Caribbean, at, uh, <clears throat> at the national level. A final drawer in nature's curiosity cabinet reveals the leaves of seagrasses. Seagrasses, which are flowering marine plants that grow underwater, sequester more carbon per gram dry weight than any other plants on this planet. Their pollination mechanisms are extraordinary. And in halosaccharides, which I studied in the Banda Islands, in the remote Maluku province of Indonesia, male flowers, at the lowest tide of the year, release their flowers underwater. These male flowers float to the surface of the sea where they collide in the depression made by the female flowers. As the tide rises, the floating petals of the female flowers float and arise and envelop the tiny male flowers, bringing them close to the stigmas and pollination occurs. How romantic. In Australia, I discovered that on the lowest tide of the year, noodle-like pollen of the seagrass species Amphibolis Antarctica form floating rafts that collide with female flowers. And in the Caribbean island of St. Croix, Dr. Thomas Almquist, my former Harvard professor, P. B. Tomlinson, and I discovered that the seagrass, sering- the Syringodium sea filiforme and Thalassia testudinum are both pollinated underwater. Despite these fascinating pollination systems, seagrasses are seriously endangered along coastlines and in islands throughout the world. Over half of their populations have disappeared. This decline in seagrass populations has resulted in serious declines in the population of manatees, dugongs, turtles, other marine mammals, including whales that depend on small fish and crustaceans nurtured and protected by seagrass meadows. Seacology has now funded seagrass conservation projects in the Dominican Republic, Greece, India, Indonesia, Jamaica, Mexico, Papua New Guinea, the Philippines, Spain, Thailand, the United States, Vanuatu, and Wales. And we're learning from these projects how to protect seagrasses, particularly how to protect them from anchors dropped by boats that destroy them, how to map their distributions and provide information online to boat captains, so they can avoid anchoring there. And most importantly, how to reestablish seagrass populations from seed. What's cool about seagrass is their leaves break off underwater at the base and then float to the surface so they're washed up along the beach. And this happens day after day, week after week, month after month. If allowed to decay, the carbon that the leaves have sequestered is released back to the atmosphere. But if they're dried for thatch, such as used on traditional cottages on the Danish island of Læsø, the carbon these seagrass leaves have stored can be preserved for centuries without atmospheric release. How'd you like to thatch your roof with something that gives you a negative carbon footprint? Cool. My former BYU PhD student, Dr. Sandy Wiley-Echevarria, studied seagrass insulation quilts manufactured prior to World War II he's documented the historical seagrass leaf industry in Nova Scotia. He found that farmers there sold each year $1.6 million of dried seagrass leaves. These were shipped down to Boston and manufactured into seagrass quilts made by the Cabot Corporation. By 1930, seagrass quilts had insulated over 350 buildings including the first Bauhaus design in America, the Walder Gropius House in Lincoln, Massachusetts, as well as Carnegie Hall in New York City. So together with Dino Voigt in Vienna, Austria, and my young granddaughter, Nora, we are now attempting to reboot the seagrass insulation industry because of its potential contributions in reducing carbon footprints. Seagrass leaves are resistant to mold and decay, they can't catch fire. They offer ex- uh, standing natural insulation. Imagine insulating your home with seagrass quilts that make an unmatched contribution to stopping global warming. Well, what are some concrete steps that you as a student can personally take to show reverence for the earth? Here are three suggestions. First of all, you can draw closer to the earth by taking time to view spectacular sunsets. Or even get up early to see the sunrise. Yes, freshmen, it does rise in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> you could begin by making your own curiosity cabinet, perhaps even just within a shoebox where you might place a colorful fall leaf, some beautiful seashells, maybe a sketch or a poem or a photo that you've made about the earth. As Pres- presiding Bishop Gerald Cazet said in the October General Conference, quote, our interactions, with the beauties of nature around us, can produce some of the most inspiring and delightful experiences in life. Second, you can take a bold stand against climate change by planting and caring for a tree, or even just a houseplant. Every single gram of carbon dioxide sequestered by a plant reduces by one gram the burden of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. Third, you can support national parks, national forests, local preserves, the beautiful park at the base of Rock Canyon, just above this campus, resulted from a plan crafted by BYU students in a beginning botany class I taught here some years ago. Perhaps together, we could create a national park to protect the stromatolites and precious habitats in the Great Salt Lake. Together with migratory bird habitat, the Golden Spike National Monument, and Robert Smithson's 1,500-foot-long geological sculpture, Spiral Jetty, which the press has termed as the most important piece of art that virtually no one has seen. There are more than enough natural, archaeological, and historical treasures present to pre- qualify that area for national park status. And based on our personal experience in creating the 50th National Park of the United States in American Samoa, in which villagers are allowed and encouraged to sustainably harvest medicinal plants and other resources from the rainforest. We know it's possible to craft the legislation so the Great Salt Lake can be protected and restored without endangering livelihoods of brine shrimp fleet workers or those that work at companies that extract salt and rare minerals from the Great Salt Lake waters by evaporation. I personally think the National Park Service, of course, my dad was a National Park Ranger, so a little bit of bias here, but, I personally think the National Park Service would be a good arbiter for the many different stakeholders who all together want a desire to have the Great Salt Lake restored to its previous vibrant condition. In reverence to the earth, we can also cooperate with others of good intent. Speaking of humanitarian service, President Dallin Oaks in the recent October conference said, quote, as members of the restored church, we need to be more aware and more appreciative of the service of others. Nephi foresaw that members of our church would be few, but also upon the face of all the earth. I believe as citizens of over 160 countries and as members speaking more than 178 different languages that we have an unparalleled geographical reach and opportunity to provide leadership in reverencing the creation. Now today I focused my remarks about nature's curiosity cabinet on plants. As a botanist in Sweden, I was deeply moved by the beauty of the king's lilies, which grow in a large field near Uppsala. As Jesus told his disciples, consider the lilies how they grow. That's why we have botany classes still at the university. Consider the lilies how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Yet if we gaze upwards at nighttime, we see the vastness of the creation. As Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, quote, "'If the stars should appear one night in a thousand years, how would men believe and adore and preserve for many generations the remembrance of the city of God, which had been shown," Unquote. As Moses stated in modern scripture, Were it possible that man could number the particles of the earth? Yea, millions of earths like this. It would not be a beginning to the number of thy creation. Recent observations from NASA using the James Webb Space Telescope confirm that the number of stars in the universe is so great that it exceeds the number of grains of sand on every beach and in every desert of this planet. Next time you sift sand with your hand, realize that you could assign to each single grain of sand a different star and never run out. The vastness of this universe, the beauty of the creation that surrounds us, evidences to my mind the handiwork of a loving creator. I believe as a result, we have a great responsibility to care for the creation and to protect it. By exploring nature's curiosity cabinet, we can not only increase our own sense of wonder, but also discover truths that can help some of the world's most serious problems. As Brigham Young said, quote, be willing to receive the truth, let it come from whom it may, unquote. In our recent general conference, President Russell M. Nelson explained, quote, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints embraces all truth that God can face to his children, whether learned in a scientific laboratory or received by direct revelation from him. It's my hope, my sincere hope, that as we explore together nature's curiosity cabinet, that we can demonstrate reverence for the earth and for the creator. If you love the artist, please do not slash his painting. If we pursue conservation of the earth, I'm confident in the process, we'll discover new medicines, we'll prevent serious disease. Together we'll reduce the impact of climate change and we will prove ourselves to be worthy stewards over earthly blessings, which the Lord has made and prepared for what he calls his creatures, as well as for billions of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Thank you so much for being with me this morning.
0: You've been listening to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage. Overcoming Adversity, Come Follow Me, the Prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information.